0: Hello and welcome to the BarCast. I'm your host, Nick Barr, taping this on a Sunday evening. And I have in front of me the book Impro by Keith Johnstone. Uh, It's a cult classic of sorts, and I finished it over the weekend. And I I wanted to discuss at least parts of it, at least parts of the first two chapters, which are on status and spontaneity um, in the context of product design and some work that I'm I'm working on right now. Uh, This is a really great book. I highly recommend it. Um, and I'm sure we'll refer back to it in the future um, The first chapter is is about status um, so the the four chapters are status, spontaneity, narrative, and masks and trance and and they're all uh, all uh, the whole book is about improvisational theater so Keith Johnston I guess was a, a teacher in improv um, and basically just discusses things he noticed or, or, or lessons he taught. But this goes way beyond sort of the, the yes and, uh, tricks that are sort of popular in improv, although it certainly does, does mention them. But the, the beginning of this book is really sort of a, about as, as great as beginnings of books get. Uh, Stone comes to realization that really you can, you can, uh, Dissect any conversation and under the hood, pretty much every interaction is all about status. That's his claim. And it's a pretty compelling one. And so this is, this is how he goes about making that claim. This is i I'll, I'll read the first page. Status, the seesaw. When I began teaching at the Royal Court Theater Studio, I noticed that the actors couldn't reproduce ordinary conversation. They said, talkie scenes are dull, but the conversations they acted out were nothing like those I overheard in life. For some weeks I experimented with scenes in which two strangers met and interacted, and I tried saying no jokes and don't try to be clever, but the work remained unconvincing. They had no way to mark time and allow situations to develop. They were forever striving to latch on to interesting ideas. If casual conversations really were motiveless and operated by chance, why was it impossible to reproduce them at the studio? I was preoccupied with this problem when I saw the Moscow Arts production of The Cherry Orchard. Everyone on stage seemed to have chosen the strongest possible motives for each action. No doubt the production had been improved in the decades since Stanislavsky directed it. The effect was theatrical, but not like ni- not not like life as I knew it. I asked myself for the first time, what were the weakest possible motives, the motives that the characters I was watching might really have had? When I returned to the studio, I set the first of my status exercises. Try to get your status just a little above or below your partner's, I said, and I insisted that the gap should be minimal. The actors seemed to know exactly what I meant, and the work was transformed. The scenes became authentic, and actors seemed marvelously observant. Suddenly, we understood that every inflection and movement implies a status, and that no action is due to chance or really motiveless. It was hysterically funny, but at the same time very alarming. All our secret maneuverings were exposed. If someone asked a question, we didn't bother to answer it. We concentrated on why it had been asked. No one could make an innocuous remark without everyone instantly grasping what lay behind it. Normally, we're forbidden to see status transactions except where there's a conflict. In reality, status transactions continue all the time. In the park, we'll notice the ducks squabbling, but not how carefully they keep their distances when they are not. And he goes on to uh, give a bunch of examples of this and, and, and provide some uh, exercises around status. And it's it's a really great chapter overall and a good hook into the book. The book gets headier and weirder as it continues with the last chapter being masks and trance. And he uh, talks about his his. Masks exercises or his mask exercises, which really involve the, the actor being inhabited by a mask, uh, as if in a trance state, as if being possessed by a mask. And he draws many connections to voodoo rituals and, uh, all sorts of funky stuff going on in Micronesia. So that's where he ends up. Um, but the first chapter is extremely accessible and, and compelling. I, I wanted to spend the majority of this conversation on the second chapter, which is around spontaneity, uh, because it, it most closely relates to the work that I'm interested in. I'm doing. Uh, you could swap out spontaneity for creativity here or expression. The idea of becoming sort of a uninhibited expresser of ideas. So we're we're not really talking about quality ideas. We're talking about quantity ideas. We're talking about sort of unblocking the flow of ideas. And John Stone's claim is that we're in a bit of a crisis. That's not at all a new claim or or a particularly interesting one. But he, he has some points to make about it that are worth discussing in detail. One of the things he thinks is the most toxic is that we believe that expression is self-expression. He goes on to say, We have an idea that art is self-expression, which historically is weird. An artist used to be seen as a medium through which something else operated. He was a servant of the God. Maybe a mask maker would have fasted and prayed for a week before he had a vision of the mask he was to carve, because no one wanted to see his mask. They wanted to see the gods. When Eskimos believed that each piece of bone only had one shape inside it, then the artist didn't have to think up an idea. He had to wait until he knew what was in there, and this is crucial. When he'd finished carving, his friends couldn't say, I'm a bit worried about that nanook in the third igloo, but only he made a mess getting that out, or there are some very odd bits of bone about these days. These days, of course, the Eskimos get booklets giving illustrations of what will sell. Before we infected them, they were in contact with the source of inspiration that we are not. It's no wonder that our artists are aberrant characters. It's not surprising that great African sculptors ended up carving coffee tables, or that the talent of our children dies the moment we expect them to become adult. Once we believe that art is self-expression, then the individual can be criticized not only for his skill or lack of skill, but simply for being what he is. Um, so that's those are some initial comments on on spontaneity, and uh, I, I do I do like that bit of semantic wrangling, which is oftentimes for for us creativity and expression and self expression are all interchangeable. And what we don't really talk about much is this uh, idea of being a medium, because we we're godless. We don't we don't believe in deities anymore, and nor nor should we. But uh, with the abandonment of deities comes the abandonment of ourselves as vessels. Um, with, you know, maybe mind-body dualists could could salvage that, but if you're a materialist, it's very hard to endorse any kind of model in which we act as we act as vessels for anything. And I think that is that is a problem when it comes to uninhibiting. Creative expression or or spontaneity, um, because in order to uninhibit ourselves, we do have to start kind of carving out sub identities. I think Johnston has a, has another pa- paragraph here about that. Let's let's see what it it says here. Schiller wrote of a watcher at the gates of the mind who examines ideas too closely. He said that in the case of the creative mind, the intellect has withdrawn its watcher from the gates, and the ideas rush in pell-mell, and only then does it review and inspect the multitude. He said that uncreative people are ashamed of the momentary passing madness which is found in all real creators. Regarded in isolation, an idea might be quite insignificant and venturesome in the extreme, but it may acquire importance from an idea that follows it. Perhaps in collation with other ideas which seem equally absurd, it may be capable of furnishing a very serviceable link. Um, So that's sort of a taste for language in which we have to become unscientific to become useful. Of course, there is no watcher at the gates of the mind. The mind is the mind. But it can be helpful to, I guess, sort of start to imagine that part of you is blocking yourself. Um, Johnstone goes on to kind of name three reasons why he wasn't creative in school. And, uh, these are them at school. Any spontaneous act was likely to get me into trouble. I learned never to act on impulse and that whatever came into my mind first should be rejected in favor of better ideas. I learned that my imagination wasn't good enough. I learned that the first idea was unsatisfactory because it was one psychotic, two obscene, or three unoriginal. The truth is that the best ideas are often psychotic, obscene, and unoriginal. And he uh, goes on to kind of give some examples. I wanted to think a little bit more about obscenity of those three. So there's psychotic, obscene, unoriginal, and he has sections on each. Obscenity resonated with me uh, in the context of um, a, a little side project I'm working on, it's a drawing app. In the spirit of a previous drawing app I helped create called DrawQuest, and DrawQuest was an app to bring back your daily creativity with uh, drawing challenges. These drawing challenges were sort of prompts, um, and if you've listened to uh, my conversation with Edlin in the previous barcast, uh, we we sort of talk about prompts as and icebreakers as. Uh, in sort of un- unlockers of creativity, and so you know, there's a lot of uh, themes coming back in in impro. Of the book, but obscenity was interesting to me because we had this challenge in DrawQuest, and uh, there's even an early challenge in the app that I'm, I'm building on the side around when you tell someone to draw something, they'll almost inevitably draw. Well, I shouldn't say almost inevitably many people will draw uh dicks or poop or boobs or butts etc and I mean this we know this to, factually to be true we saw it on drawquest I've seen it on my side project uh, people people like to be obscene and at first, I sort of thought that was a problem but it it, it kind of gets refigured in, in the improv book almost as a success, right? So there is real spontaneity happening if you are being obscene. Um, so rather than someone not drawing anything, drawing dicks or boobs is actually sort of a minor victory. Now you can go uh, up from there, but it, it was the first time that I realized that we would, be going against our mission if we were to do something to, for instance, create a policy around no obscenity. Uh, So having a policy that says, hey, no no offensive material would be really appropriate for most apps, but if the mission of your app is to unlock creativity, I'm convinced you can't possibly uh, fulfill your mission while having that policy you have to allow and potentially even encourage obscenity um, to begin the unblocking process, as it were. That raises all sorts of interesting questions. Well, maybe interesting only to me, but from a product perspective on how you would possibly implement that. So we, we use as a foundation the idea that we can't block obscenity. We can't make rules against it. We have to allow it we have to expect it to be sort of the birth of creativity. Um, we have to actually celebrate it as much or maybe more than someone trying to draw, uh, let's say, a, a tree or something a little bit more kind of contrived. There's something truly spontaneous about the obscene, uh, contends Johnston. So we've got to allow it. The problem is with these social apps, uh, A a person's first-time experience might be seeing a feed full of dicks, and that's not great. So if your app is growing particularly fast, you have many people drawing for the first time, and they might be drawing obscene material. So one option, of course, is to show a curated feed, but that has its own set of, of issues uh, that we'll talk about a little bit more, but you know Johnson will will go on to sort of talk about therapy and therapeutic behaviors, and for the most part, talks about improv in the scope of therapy, and, and there is a good section that I'll I'll read from later about that. But so any kind of curation or, or rewarding processes anti-therapeutic, rather showing something simply in a reverse chronological feed. Is the sort of acceptance and non-judgment that we would we would want in, in a therapeutic interaction. So so let's say for now that we do require things to show from you know sort of just the newest stuff gets thrown into a feed. How do we how do we reconcile this? How do we f- support and foster spontaneity among newly creative people while at the same time creating a inviting space for others, because there will be many people who will, who will just simply leave the app if their first time experiencing it is seeing a bunch of dicks. And, and that's one of the things that, uh, you know, an in, in, in improv session is different than a social network. An improv session might be 10 people who are all known to each other. Um, the safe, the space is sort of declared safe and work is done to make sure that it really is safe. Whereas a social network is is pretty much the opposite of that. It is unbounded in size. People are largely anonymous, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I I think my my hunch, and this could turn out to be wrong, my hunch is you take um, what's sometimes called the hall of mirrors approach. The hall of mirrors is a, a technique against spam in which spammers don't know that they've been blocked or blacklisted or whatever you want to call it. And the reason they don't know it is because they can continue to post and see each other's posts. The problem is they're put in sort of a a, a purgatory or a hall of mirrors where they only see other spammers' posts. And so they're sort of engaging with each other and trolling each other and doing whatever spammers do, but they're doing it in this uh, dungeon of spam. Um, So of course, eventually they'll figure it out, but it might take them... Uh, a while, whereas once you get blocked, you can spin up a new account immediately. So I wonder if there isn't a sort of hollow mirrors to build for the the nascent uh, creator, the person who's still sort of in their infancy, um, in which we can allow and encourage and support their their first baby steps while at the same time not exposing them to a larger audience. And, and this could very well mean like lying to the user. So for instance, their first three drawings might all be invisible and we might fake some engagement stats, um, tell them that it got 20 hearts and five plays or whatever. Although we'll, we'll talk more about what kind of engagement makes sense in, in an app like this. Um, we might we might make that explicit. We might say, "Hey, you're in practice mode," but uh, I don't know. Um, I don't know if that would that would meet the criterion. I think I might be someone who, as soon as I leave practice mode, I, I'll be sure to draw a dick. Um, we might do a little bit of logic to analyze the drawing. I'm not talking about any kind of fancy deep learning algorithm although sure why not we we could certainly analyze it and if we think there's a 95% chance that it's a dick we might put it in the hall of mirrors and fake engagement around it but we also might simply look at like how big the drawing is how many strokes it has and if it's one or two strokes um, we might not expose that to, to a larger audience. I have no qualms about lying to people about whether their work is being seen or not seen I, I would imagine that that's like a controversial perspective, but, um, you know, I think in this case it's totally justifiable. So there was sort of a quick tangent on, on spontaneity. Um, I guess we'll, we'll, we'll continue on, um, and see if we have any more ideas sleepy, but it's only it's 8.30, so this is a West Coast problem, getting sleepy at 8.30. Um, so let's, let's read a little bit more of John Stone and talk about what he says about obscenity, and then I want to read a footnote that I thought was very interesting. Let's see, where are we? Okay, so uh, this is the chapter on obscenity. I find many things obscene in the sense of repulsive or shocking. I find the use of film from real massacres and the titles of TV shows pretty nasty. I find the way people take pills and smoke cigarettes and generally screw themselves up rather awful. The way parents and teachers often treat children nauseates me. Most people think of obscene things as sexual, like pubic hair, obscene language, but I'm more shocked by modern cities, by the carcinogens in the air and in the food, by the ever-increasing volume of radioactive materials in the environment. In the first seven months of 1975, the cancer rate in America seems to have jumped by 5.2%, but few noticed the information didn't have news value. Most people's idea of what is or isn't obscene varies. In some cultures, certain times are set aside when the normal values are reversed. The lord of misrule, zuni clowning, many carnivals, and something similar happens even in this culture, or so I'm told at office parties, for example. People's tolerance of obscenity varies according to the group they're with, or the particular circumstances. People can laugh at jokes told at a party that they wouldn't find funny on a more formal occasion. It seems unfortunate to me that the classroom is often considered a formal area in this sense. The first school I taught at had one woman teacher. When she went out shopping at lunchtime, the men pulled their chairs around and told dirty stories non-stop. Down in the playground, as usual, the children were swapping similar stories or writing shit or fuck on the walls, always correctly spelled, yet the staff considered the children dirty little devils and punished them for saying things which were far milder than the things the teacher themselves would say and enjoy laughing at. When these children grow up and perhaps crack up, then they'll find themselves in therapy groups where they'll be encouraged to say all the things that the teacher would have forbidden during school. And then there's a footnote. Um... And the footnote uh, quotes at length another book. Um, let me bring this up. The book is Interacting with Patients. And so he's, he's drawing um, even more of a connection between therapy and spontaneity and teaching. He says, teachers are obliged to impose a censorship on their pupils. And in consequences, school provides an empty therapeutic environment. In interacting with patients, a work intended for nurses, Joyce Samhauer Hayes and Kenneth Larson describe therapeutic and non-therapeutic ways of interacting. Here are their first ten therapeutic techniques. And so I'll read these therapeutic techniques and give examples. Therapeutic technique. Using silence. An example is just a, there's just a blank space there. Accepting. Examples. Yes. Uh hmm I follow what you said. We're nodding. Technique, giving recognition. Good morning, Mr. S. You've tooled a leather wallet. I notice that you've combed your hair. Technique, offering self. I'll sit with you a while. I'll stay here with you. I'm interested in your comfort. Technique, giving broad openings. Is there something you'd like to talk about? What are you thinking about? Where would you like to begin? Technique, offering general leads. Go on, and then, tell me about it. Technique, placing the event in time or in sequence. What seemed to lead up to, was this before or after? When did this happen? Technique, making observations. You appear tense. Are you uncomfortable when you... I notice you're biting your lips. It makes me uncomfortable when you... Technique, encouraging description of perceptions. Tell me when you feel anxious. What is happening? What does the voice seem to be saying? Technique encouraging comparison. Was this something like, have you had similar experiences? And he goes on to say, obviously the book has psychiatric nurses in mind, but it's interesting to compare to teacher-pupil interactions. Here are the first 10 non-therapeutic techniques. So I'll I'll read these. Technique reassuring. I wouldn't worry about, everything will be all right you coming along fine. Giving approval. That's good. I'm glad that you... Rejecting. Let's not discuss. I don't want to hear about. Disproving. Or rather, disapproving. That's bad. I'd rather you wouldn't... Agreeing. That's right. I agree. Disagreeing. That's wrong. I definitely disagree with. I don't believe that. Advising. I think you should. Why don't you... Probing. Now tell me about, tell me your life history. Challenging. But how can you be president of the United States? If you're dead, why is your heart beating? Testing. What day is this? Do you know what kind of hospital this is? Do you still have the idea that? that? Um, and Johnstone ends by saying, I'm doing the book in Injustice by quoting out of context, but it's widely available and it analyzes many interactions. Schools make it difficult for teachers to interact therapeutically. Thinking back to my own schooling, I remember how isolated the teachers were. How there were only certain areas when you could communicate with them at all. If teachers were allowed to interact in a therapeutic manner, then the adjective "school teachery" would not be disparaging. Um, and and so there's a lot to digest there. Certainly, some of the techniques are obvious, and some of them aren't obvious. I think probably the least obvious to me were. Therapeutic techniques of making observations. So some of those seem like they could evoke uh, uh, sort of a a bad response. For instance, if I say, I notice you're biting your lips or you appear uncomfortable. Um, And then conversely, while all the non-therapeutic techniques, uh, I'm I'm ultimately convinced of them. Things like giving approval. That's good. Or agreeing. I agree. That's right. uh, Probing. Um, testing. Um, It's interesting to see those listed as non-therapeutic. And so I think just to close, there's a lot to explore around motivation in the context of creativity or spontaneity or expression. A lot of work has been done on motivation and extrinsic motivation and intrinsic motivation and gamification and behavioral models. And a lot of that, work has sort of gotten injected into the better social apps that we have out there. We want you to do a behavior and we're going to motivate you to do that behavior, um, through a variety of psychological, uh, means. Um, but if you're creating a therapeutic app and, the contention here is that any app meant to unlock creativity is therapeutic, then you might find yourself dealing with a different set of motivators um, for that behavior, specifically the, the idea being that in order to foster creativity, especially in its earliest stages, one might need to take a therapeutic approach. And in that therapeutic approach, there cannot be anything Encouraging or agreeing or disagreeing or rejecting or approving or disapproving. Um, one simply has to listen and accept. Um, we'll see if there's uh, sort of a closing thought from Johnston on this. He says, Folks and Anthony in Group Psychotherapy, Penguin 1972, say that a therapeutic situation is one in which the patient can freely voice his innermost thoughts toward himself, towards any other person, and towards the analyst. He can be confident that he is not being judged and that he is fully accepted, whatever he may be or whatever he may disclose. Later, they add, we encourage the relaxation of censorship. We do this by letting the patient members understand that they are not only permitted but expected to say anything that comes to mind. We tell them not to allow any of their usual inhibitory considerations to stand in the way of voicing the ideas that come to them spontaneously. Spontaneously spontaneously Um, so I think we'll close there Um, and I invite you to think about how one might create spontaneous situations in a social app how one might try to create those safe spaces for creativity in what is fundamentally an unsafe space uh, that is to say the social media landscape. See you next time.